airways Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we catch up with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And for today's guest, the term Pilots of the Airwaves could not be more appropriate. He hosted top-rating programs in two capital city marketplaces, teamed up with an Australian rock icon to form one of this country's great radio duos. Plus, he's the holder of a commercial charter pilot license. Now that's impressive. And so is Mark Irvine. Mark Irvine, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. An absolute pleasure, Paul, and considering the company you keep, it's a pleasure to be here. Hey, Mark, the pleasure is all ours, I can assure you. Now, you're a proud alumnus of the Yoronga High School, a suburb of Brisbane. How were those early days at school, and what did a young Mark Irvine excel in? Um, anything that didn't have anything to do with schoolwork. I actually started a school radio station. And just for fun and, you know, ended up winning the school service award and all sorts of things like that. So, and I was in drama and debating and all that sort of stuff. Basically, if it had nothing to do with schoolwork, I excelled. Yep, gotcha. So when you were serving the tables or working the hot plates at the Bonanza Steakhouse in Brizzy, what was the radio station that was playing in the background and who was making an impression on you? Um, it was 4BC and 4IP in the 70s in, in Brisbane. Uh, 4BC had more personalities and 4IP was the great music radio station. Making impressions, well, you know, Kevin Hillier, you got to throw that in there, and Gavin, Gavin Fullwood at the time. Peter Dick was on 4BC, Silly Dick. Um, basically, 4BC was the personality radio station, so I enjoyed that part of it. And then 4IP was the serious music station. And as I like to say, Ray McGregor, for example, he helped me get into radio. As I was saying to another buddy only a short while back, even these days when I'm on air, if I'm talking serious music stuff, I channel Ray McGregor. When I loosen off a little bit and get a little bit, not slack, but loosen up, um, I channel Peter Dick. So they're the ones from the 70s I would have listened to. Okay, first stop in the radio journey is 4LM in Mount Isa, a lazy 2,000 kilometres from the home base. 
How did a city teenager with radio stars in his eyes, obviously, end up in the top end of Australia? And how were those first eight months? Yes, uh, you sound like my mother now. She was horrified when I scored a job at 4LM Mount Isa. He's been mentioned before. I think Kevin Hillier mentioned him in your pilots. Um, the great Sir Frank Moore. I was in Sir Frank Moore's office, as Kevin Hillier was a few years before me, um, and applied for the job and went into the office. And Sir Frank was lovely, and I just got the, the job at 4LM Mount Isa. Many years later, when I was working at 4BC, one of the secretaries there, Jan, said, who was used to be Sir Frank's um, secretary, said, well, basically, I would have been the one who got you the job. I give Frank the nod when someone walks in, and if I give you the nod, he employs you. So thank you, Jan. And life generally in Mount Isa? Life in Mount Isa, I was like 17 and three quarters, so I was still very young, and it was fantastic, really. There was a lot of teachers up there who were on their two-year country service. A lot of Brisbane police mates were up there on their service, you know, country service. So I had a lot of friends, and Mount Isa was just a town. Mount Isa mines were in everything from the sewing circle right up to the gliding club that I went into. Um, I really enjoyed Mount Isa. I loved it. And of course, it was my first radio station. After six months, I think I was the senior guy there. <laughs> Fantastic now, after a short stint in Nara at 2ST, you landed a bit closer to home at 4GR in Toowoomba. But apparently there's more significance to that move than just another regional appointment. John Williams from 4BC, the program director, had basically employed me at 4BC. He said, the next time we get a, a position for a producer, which will probably be coming up in three or four months, he said, um, you've got it. So we're going to send you to 4GR, Toowoomba, to be closer and to be ready to go, which of course meant everybody at 4GR knew I was just in there for three months. So I was doing midnight till 6am Tuesday night right through till Friday, and then I'd do 6pm to midnight Saturday and Sunday night, and I'd have Monday off, which basically just meant I had finished work at midnight um, Sunday night and had to go back midnight at Monday night. Oh, that's right, and do karting in the afternoons. Every afternoon, 2 till 5, karting. But I did enjoy my time at 4GR, and Tour was a great place. We know, of course, 4BC these days is Brisbane's news talk radio station, but tell us a little bit about the station and some of the names on the roster in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, Wayne Poo on breakfast. I mean, it was primarily a music personality station. Wayne Poo doing breakfast, Hayden Sargent, legendary talkback man, um, doing night till noon. People like Robert Bruff in the afternoons, your old mate Robbo, Graham Roberts, um, the, whack, the whacked one. Bruce McCartney, Bill Ally was there, Murray Shoring, Murray Boring Snoring Shoring, who I got to know very well again on the Gold Coast in the last few years. G'day, Murray. Um, it was a fabulous radio station, and I was employed as a production guy doing producing and panelling, and I would also fill in for Wayne Pooh come Christmas time when he was on holidays. I had a fabulous time at 4BC. It was great. Now, as you mentioned, you were heavily involved in production work at 4BC. How do you think that experience helped you as your career progressed? And what sort of opportunities did it open up for you at the time? 
I think big time as as a producer, you learn certainly. You know, you, you kind of got to know how to read a commercial and how to put a commercial together and how to get the best out of people when they're in there struggling to read a commercial. That transfers to on air. And then, of course, I've done voiceovers for the last 20 years. There's an obvious you know, connection there. But I think the skill of being a producer and learning how to be a producer and editing and operating multi-tracks helps you in the on-air part as well. You can, you can do more on-air with it. Now, of course, 1982 was a massive year for Brisbane as the host of the Commonwealth Games. I'm sure 4BC joined the party. Do you play any part in the station's involvement in the Games? Big time. There was a a consortium put together, which I think was like over 65 radio stations around the country. And we all did, we we went into the broadcast centre for the Commonwealth Games and we went live to it, I think every half hour for breakfast and for drive, we were broadcasting a little two or three minute piece out to 65 radio stations. So that was just stunning. And compare it to the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast a few years back. Yeah, no, it's changed a lot because it was huge in Brisbane in 1982. And I had the best time there, along with Phil Lentz, who's in Perth these days. He was the other producer. And I learned a lot of him as well. So it was just fantastic. Oh, did I tell you I went to London with Hayden Sargent? in 1981 for the Royal Wedding, which was striking to me, a little 21-year-old. We were on air from midnight till three at Capital Radio in in Soho. And then, of course, we had to be up again at seven o'clock to go out and do nine to five interviews, then come back at five o'clock, and then I'd have to cut the interviews up, and then we'd go back on air from midnight till three. And you know, here was me, I was a pretty fit little 21-year-old at the time, and Hayden, I think at the time, had half a lung and this problem and that problem, And but he'd learned how to sleep, that power sleep for one hour in the afternoons, and he was fine. I was falling all over the place within about three days, and Hayden, fine. What a time that was. And then the boss said, go on, take two weeks off afterwards and go around Europe, which I thought was very nice of 4BC. Now, Mark, no doubt the Royal Wedding would have been fascinating, but for me, the chance to work out of Capital Radio in London would have been the absolute highlight because at the time, Capital was the almost epicentre of the commercial radio world. It certainly was. And we we broadcast from a little, their training, uh, they had a little training set up, which had like about six radio studios and they were awesome studios, you know, and that was the Capital Radio training building and in the middle of Soho how much fun was Soho So in 1983, you head down south to the Rock of Melbourne and join 3XY. Now how did you end up in Melbourne? First impressions of the station and what were your initial duties? Well straight up uh, I was hired as floater. Um, but straight up, Bill Alley, was, who was at 3XY, was used to work at 4BCs. And when he left 3XY, he dobbed me in, rang me, said, quick, send a tape. So I sent it, because I was a production guy, I had an eight-track studio, I sent an awesome tape. So, of course, 3XY, Greg Smith and Gary Soprane, um, they then flew me down and had a chat to me for half an hour, must have liked me to the extent where, right, no, we're not going to lunch, in the studio you go do it again, do another audition. So I spent about an hour in there, you know, doing it and uh, got the job from there. 
impressions at 3XY, well, wow, just it's it was 3XY. And I'm a little producer out of 4BC in Brisbane, and I've just joined this legendary radio station. Um, but the people there made it magnificent. Easy. Um, Greg Smith was the boss. Then Gary Supreme was the boss. Um, I loved it. How could you not love it? It was fantastic. So you arrived in the October, or should I say Rocktober, of 1983. What are your memories of that Rocktober and subsequent Rocktobers that followed? Well, it, it was my first Rocktober. I mean, I knew Rocktober from 4IP, and the, the network. Um, my first reaction was how big it was. And the listeners just, well, they knew all about Rocktober from 3XY of the 70s. And uh, the, big, I, uh, the big memory would be the concert, the 10 bands in 10 hours or 10 bands for $10 or something. And we all got up and, and had to introduce bands. And, you know, to get up in front of 30,000 people it was a real buzz. As it turns out, I think it's harder to get up in front of 20 people. 30,000 people is just a sea. 10, 20 people, you've got to kind of know what you're doing there. But uh, Rocktober, it was, and as many of the guys that you've talked to on the podcasts have said, it's everybody just worked and worked and worked. And the more you worked, the more it felt good. And we just loved it, just loved it. Now, Mark, radio stations will try any gimmick to attract an audience and to be original, but can I take you back to a 3XY midnight promotion at the gates of the Melbourne Cemetery? What do you recall of that night? That was, I think it was, it was one of those scary movies that ended up having, you know, seven or eight of them afterwards. It was the original one. And we thought, how we give away the tickets to this? And so we, we came up with the idea and did a promo and, you know, be at the gates of the Melbourne Cemetery at midnight tonight. So I've got there in the 3XY van and um, I've jumped on top of the van and a mate of mine was handing me the tickets through the top of the roof, a little sky light thing now a thousand tickets is only a pile of about three or four inches high because they were just very very thin and so a thousand of them you could lift up with one hand so i'd given away about five or six of them and then started sort of throwing a few around and then i've gone back up give me some more and my mates turned around and said they're gone somebody had put their arm through the window picked up a thousand passes to this movie and then gone. In hind, and I, we had some flyers and things like that. And I threw that out and then we bolted. And we had, you know, we had two dozen cars following us around. Peter Grace was on air at the time at 3XY. And he said, there's, a, there's 20 or 30 people out the front. They're not being pleasant. In hindsight, I should have just got up and gone, look, somebody amongst this crowd has pinched all of a thousand of them. Quick, look around, find him. But instead, we tried, I tried to get away with it. And well, no, we didn't. So the boss walks in one day and says, we're going to try something different here, Mark. We want you to team up with an on-air partner. What was your first reaction to that one? Scared stiff. Shirley Strawn? Oh, no. Um, And then we met and you know what Shirley's like. It's just awesome. He's friendly. He's happy. He does anything. Um. And my my main thought when I think back on Sherl is his work ethic. He had the best work ethic of anyone I think I've ever met. If there was a job to be done, you just do it. If it's a job to be done at 1am in the morning, you just do it. 
don't complain, just do it, which I thought, I, I suppose that's because he was a chippy apprentice to his dad. So his father really brought him up well there. That's so much fun working with Sherl. So how long do you think it took for the Sherl and Irvine chemistry to really gel? I don't think it took long because Sherl's really open and I'm really open and sort of two or three weeks in, I'm sure we were fine. Um, and, you know, working a two-man show, you get to know that other person really, really well. Sherl got to know me well, I got to know him well, and he'd be able to pick up on my little inferences and I'd be able to pick up on his. Um, he was funny, you know, I'd, I'd be heading somewhere in, in a conversation or something and then, you know, talking, and Sherl had just come in from left field. And I'd, I'd look up, at, up to him and go, what are you saying? Where are you going? What are you doing? But you couldn't stop him. And that was half of his delight. Now you have the Radio Pro and the Rockstar presenting together. Were there any written or unwritten rules in the studio that you both needed to subscribe to to make it a success? In general, kind of like I was just sort of saying, if I'm heading somewhere, Cheryl, back me up, will you? No, Cheryl just go in from wherever he's coming from at the time. Generally he would, but every now and then you'd go, oh, Cheryl, or I'd be working towards something or a... Not, not a punchline, but I'd be working towards a, revel a revelation or something like that. And all of a sudden, Cheryl's taken over and gone totally left field. And, th that <laughs> and then I'd look at him and he'd sort of come back into order again and let me continue or whatever it may be. So um, unwritten rules, they were never spoken about, which means they were never um, stuck to all the way through, I guess. We got the Today's guest on Pilots of the Airwaves is Mark Irvine. Now, Mark, like so many before you, the lure of FM radio became too great, and so it was off to Eon FM, which was soon to become Triple M. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, you were the first person on air to actually use the new call sign. I was indeed, and I like to take credit for that, and I like to really build it up into a big thing. I was the first voice on Triple M Melbourne. Uh, it was only because I did Tyndall 2. I was the Tyndall 2 jock on Saturdays. <laughs> Whoever was there would have been the first voice on Triple M Melbourne. But we had the big party out in uh, Bank Street and they flicked a switch and all that sort of stuff. It was a great day. And then, of course, uh, Triple M went on and I stayed at Triple M for many years and loved it all. Now, unfortunately, by the time you left XY, the writing seemed to be on the wall for the station. What was the initial vibe like at the M's compared to what you had left behind at 3XY? Um, the vibe at Triple M when I first got there, or Stroke Eon, um, it was just normal for them, which means they were powered up and they were working hard and really getting up it. Whereas XY was starting to, yes, as you said, starting to fall down a little bit and um, much better, much better. People were happy. And people were very happy to be working hard. And as, as I sort of like to say, the, the harder people work individually with passion and then they care about what the, the station, they care about what they're doing, generally means they're caring about what else is going on at the station too. They care about what you're doing. And there's the team. That makes the team. So, yes, when I got to Eon, huge team, fantastic. Speaking of great teams, just looking down the roster of 1991, the Triple M lineup was Kevin Hillier and the D-Gen, Richard Stubbs, Mark Irvine, Rob Elliott and John Peters. Hey, some great radio names amongst that lot. 
Oh, yes, some great radio names. And I, you mentioned Stubbsy, and I thought my first thought there was one of our favourite times to listen to Stubbsy was when something went wrong. A, uh, a CD wouldn't fire, an ad wouldn't fire, there's dead air. See, Stubbsy being a comedian, a stand-up comedian, the first thing he does is turn the mic on. The first thing we do is turn the mic off. But Stubbsy would start turning on, and then he'd just let loose. He'd, he'd while he's trying to fix up whatever he's done wrong. And Stubbsy used to, he's not the best panel operator in the world. It used to happen regularly. We loved him. Lee Simon did afternoons while I did drive at one point there. And, um, you know, I'd be in there at 2.30. I'd go in and get my carts and all the bits and pieces. And Lee and I would be chatting away. In fact, I think Lee and I would be watching, no, Lee would be watching Bold and the Beautiful and the studio monitor. And I kind of got caught up in it for a couple of months there and thought, I've got to get out of this habit. But Lee loved it. It was fabulous fun. And, yeah, of course, JP. John Peters, DGen were just firing all the way through with Kevin all the way through there. It's just fantastic lineup. They were a good bunch. Of, I'd forgotten about that lineup. Thanks for reminding me. Hey, that's what we do here at Pilots, Mark. Just jog the old memory every now and again. Hey, listen, back to Brisbane and Triple M up there, eventually teaming up with Cheryl again for a very successful breakfast program, which I must say surprised many, not that the show was a success, but that you and Cheryl were actually able to get up and about at that time of the morning. Oh, look, Cheryl was fine up and about at that time of the morning. And, you know, I was still, you know, I, I don't know, we're mid-30s, so I'm still staying up late and attempting to get up in the morning. And, you know, I'd get in there at, at 4.30 or 5 o'clock or something, and and Cheryl was like a little puppy, you know, a little just jumping out. Shut up, Cheryl. <laughs> but by 6 o'clock, of course, you know, we were both back to normal again. <laughs> and it was fun to up there doing breakfast. I enjoyed doing breakfast, and I enjoyed being back in my hometown for um, for a couple of years. Yes, it was good fun. So, what is the difference between presenting a drive program and a breakfast program? Drive, I think, less time pressures, a little bit more up your sleeve, a bit more time. You could do things. Breakfast, you're constantly um, going forward to what's coming up, and then major competitions. Um, yet drive was so much, good question, so much easier. It was so much easier than breakfast. But again, as as I think uh, Cosgrove said on, on Pilots, you know, you put your all into it, you come off air sweating, you know, and breakfast, you do come off air sweating, oh, and your brain is just worn, worn down, and it's a good feeling too. Now, Mark, towards the end of each chat, we ask a series of questions, one of them being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Can you tell me where you were on August 27, 2001, when you heard about Shirley's fatal accident? Oh, I was actually flying, being a commercial pilot in those days as well. Um, and I'd just come back from flying and went to the pub, as pilots and disc jockeys do, um, and my chopper pilot mates came up to me and pulled me aside and told me because they'd heard through their chopper pilot grapevine. Um, and then we sort of got the, the pub to put the news on. But, yeah, that was a huge shock. And um, I used to teach helicopter commercial pilot theory. So I knew about it and was, was uh, you know, probably had something to do with Sherl getting into it. Oops. But no, that was just horrible, horrible. 
So after Brisbane, it was back to Melbourne where you ran through stations uh, like the 325 Express to Hurstbridge, Triple M, Double T FM, then Gold FM, all in about 18 months. Now, Double T FM was only a very brief stop with an on-air partner called Kate Economou. How did that one work out? Yes, that's when um, we all got the boot from Triple M. And then I was talking to the good Joe Bobolino, who was on air at the time at Gold. And like that morning, and I said, I sort of sort of said, I think that's it, I'm finished now at Triple M. And blow me down, I got a phone call from Mark Beaver, who was Double T's program director, and we'd worked together at 3XY. So I finished at Triple M on the Tuesday, and on the Wednesday, started doing the Christmas breakfast show with Kate Economou. And the thing that I liked about that was I hadn't worked a computer system to that extent before. So Kate was doing the panelling, which also meant she was doing the anchor position. And so I was like the token male as opposed to the token female. I was like the token male. And I thought it really worked well for double, double what Double T was doing at the time there, Kate doing the, the main presenting, and I'd come in with the colour bits, the token male. I always thought that was a good idea. Nothing but classic hits. A 104.3, the new gold FM. Now, those years of gold must have seemed a bit like a reunion time with the likes of Gavin Wood, Kevin Hillier, Jane Holmes and Craig Huggins all on the roster. All you guys playing music that you all probably grew up with. Exactly. And it was such a pleasure. And as you said, with that lineup, we'd all worked together before. We all got on like a house on fire. And it was music that we knew. And it was listeners that we knew that had grown up in the 70s and the 80s with the 3XY and Eon and Triple M. And then it's sort of, we all hit our 40s. We all sort of moseyed on over to Gold FM and loved it at that time. And Gold was doing some really good stuff. So, And these days they're doing really good stuff as well. So good on you, Gold. Indeed. Now, Mark, besides a great radio career, you've also been the voiceover guy to some of the great Australian television programs, imaged numerous radio stations, as well as having a strong passion for flying. Therefore, rank them for me in order of most satisfaction, radio, voiceover, or piloting. Oh, that's... You can't ask that. Um, on air would be the, uh, the best one. Um, flying second, voiceovers third, I would think. So where did that passion for piloting come from and how far did you take it? I took it to fully professional, um, took it to um, charter professional charter pilot, multi-engined instrument rated, all that sort of stuff. Um, where did it come from? Always been interested in it. But I'm, I'm wondering because I also wanted to become a recording engineer, which is why I got into radio. And I'm thinking maybe it's just a buttons and dials thing. Give us lots of buttons and dials, and that's what we want to play with. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Hey, finally, Mark, a quick promotion for men's health. You gave everyone in the industry a bit of a scare there in 2015 when you were diagnosed with a brain aneurysm, now fully recovered. What were the signs at the time, and how has your lifestyle changed since then? It was just the worst headache I've ever had for about 10 seconds, and I thought I'd better go back to bed, but I didn't make it. it fell on the floor. Luckily, I got up again. And um, the public, you know, hospital system up there in Queensland for where I was at the time, magnificent. Uh, changed since education, um, lost a lot of weight. These days, doing the no sugar, no carbs, 
um, all that sort of stuff, basically education. And I think when I first got to the Gold Coast, uh, as you would, I went to the beach every day. I was exercising. I was losing weight. So I'd hate to think of what would have happened had I stayed in Melbourne and had that same brain aneurysm without it. But no, I'd say education is the major thing I've learned since the old brain aneurysm and nothing wrong since. It's very pretty down some Kilda Road In the parks and gardens All the trees are shaking out their heavy load It's a beautiful time of year Aren't you glad you're here With 1422 3XY Autumn A beautiful time of year 1422 3XY OK, Mark, as you know, we have 12 stock standard questions we ask all our guests. The first one is, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was in production, my production studio at 4BC in Brisbane, and it was a beautiful old radio station built in the probably, I don't know, 50s, 40s. The doors, you know, were four four inches thick. So I was just walking out the door as someone was running in to tell me that John Lennon had just died. Yes, it is a great question to ask anybody. We all know where we were. What was the last concert ticket you paid for? <laughs> I did pay for, I forget, a year or two ago, John Paul Young when he did the JPY Vander and Young songbook. And he did that so well, so well with great stories. Or can I throw in a story? I'm the reason why John Paul Young now sings Evie. Actually, no, I'm not. Uh, the story is uh, I was out with uh, my mate Peter Mobbs, who used to do a double with JPY in Newcastle. This is going back 10 <clears throat> probably 20 years, and did a great show here in Melbourne. Then we went back to, you know, had drinks afterwards when they're drinking, and probably at three o'clock in the morning, I've gone, JPY, you're the only one, because I'd, real, I'd seen his band, Warren Morgan, Pig Morgan, Rockwell T. James, they're the Alberts guys. They're the guys who played on Evie. I went, JPY, you're the only one in Australia allowed to sing Evie, and we will accept that. So I'm taking credit for it. Sure, it had, I'm sure it had nothing to do with it. Is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? Um, I did see the last 20 minutes of it, if I may tell the story. Bob Skaggs and Sharon O'Neill in Brisbane, early 80s. I even had a, a new date. I said, I'll meet you at Festival Hall at whatever time. So I've gone home, dolled myself up, got changed, everything, came back in parked the car, leant over in the back seat of the car to pick the uh, tickets out of the briefcase, left the briefcase at home. Uh, I had to drive back home again, get the tickets, drive back in again. Like I said, I saw the last 20 minutes of Boz Gags and never really heard from that girl again. (laughs) Mark, is there a word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Meteor weather. In Mount Isa... Uh, if there was a westerly blowing, there was a chance that the smoke coming out of the stack, and that's the first thing you learn in Mount Isa, ain't no chimney, it's a stack, um, would blow over the city. So whenever that happened, we'd have to pull out a particular piece of copy and go, you know, from the meteorological department, the, oh, what was the line? Due to meteorological conditions, and it took me weeks, meteorological weather, and the other word I, I, I never got right was I used to say, instead of won't, for some reason I'd say want. Um, and I never worried about it until I started reading commercials properly. So now I've really got to go to the won't, won't, which still doesn't sound right to me, but 
it is. Okay, Mark, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Um, not, not, not live or anything like that, or even with Cheryl. Um, but I do recall a time at 4BC doing mid-dawns and they would do a, you know, play a comedy track at three o'clock in the morning. Come five to three, I've forgotten about it. So I bolted out to the library and gone, who's funny? Oh, oh yeah, Richard Fryer, he's funny. And then I've come back in again. And then I'm just, I'm thinking, pretty sure he might be a one who swears a bit, Richard Price. So I thought, oh, I can cover that. I can go into delay. Went into delay, and I'm thinking I'm pretty good. And, of course, yes, he has. He's dropped a few dropped a few lines in there. And I've gone, I oh, got this covered. So I've gone, bang, straight out of delay, forgetting to turn the record off, which means the record's going now live to air, and he's really let loose. Next morning, I went in to tell the boss. <laughs> and the boss said, did anybody ring? And I went, no. And he went, don't worry about it. Never did. Pretty sure I know the answer to this one, but I'll ask anyway. Skyhooks or Sherbet? <laughs> I love Sherbet. Of course I've got to say Skyhooks. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Oh, I like this one. I, I, I was going to say, I'd like to say the Rolling Stones because I've always wanted to be a naughty boy, but just couldn't be a naughty boy. So the answer would be, the Beatles, of course, and me being a old recording engineer, George Martin and the Beatles. Is there a most treasured piece of memorabilia that you hold on to from those early radio days? I really wish I'd kept things. I didn't keep things, so I really don't have any. And especially now these days, um, Cheryl and I were doing like 10 interviews a week. We spoke to everybody who came into Melbourne in the late 80s. I never kept any of them. I heard Lee Simon um, on, on his Pilots of the Airway saying he's got two boxes. Lee, go and listen to them because I haven't got those two boxes and I wish I did. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air. I can't really think of any off the top of my head as a news story as such, but I was on air, I don't know, 83, 84, when that massive dust cloud came through Melbourne, that wall of dust, and turned Melbourne into night, and we didn't know what was going on. I remember I turned around to our news guys, John Bowden, because, you know, news guys know everything. Uh, he had no idea what was going on. Oh, and an end result of that story, for some reason, about 12 months later, I was up at the um, the weather department. They, they had a new place. They're showing it off, so went up and had a look. And they were up on the 40th floor of the tallest building in town. And they said, I mentioned the, the wall of, of dust. And he said, that's why. They used to be in the basement, I think, in Lonsdale Street. They never saw the dust cloud coming either. He said, now we can. Never happened since, of course. But uh, no, that would have been the probably also probably one of the scariest times. We'd, no one in Melbourne knew what was going on. Yes, and I do remember that one well. The moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck. Not too often. And like I said, Sheldon and I spoke to everybody. Brian Ferries, um, Grace Jones, they're all ma magnificent. But I must say it was a phoner. It was Steve Picaro from Toto because I'm a Toto fan. Boz Skaggs band, of course, they're all the best session musos. So what I found myself doing was 
I'd ask Steve, the, he was one of the keyboard players, a question. I would then proceed to answer the question just to show how much I knew about them. So poor old Steve would go, um, yes or no. There has been a couple of other times outside of radio. Rick Formosa was the initial lead guitarist in Little River Band. And he is just my favourite guitar break. It's a long way there. Just magnificent. I met him 10 years or so ago down at the Dogs Bar. He was playing with his uh, brother. And he was, he was just in there for the night. No, nothing special. He was, And I remember watching him. And he's playing guitar. And it was normal. But every now and then you'd hear some brilliance if you knew what you were looking for. Mm -hmm. And I went up to him afterwards and said hello, and I realised, Rick, Rick, I love you. This great. And I thought, this is not working out at all. Could not put two words together. It would have happened with Doug Parkinson had I met Doug. And I was talking to Gavin Wood a couple of weeks ago. We're talking about Mark Moffat, the producer who now lives in Nashville, in excess, used to be a little producer in a little recording engineer in Brisbane who recorded me when I was 14 in the school band. So, of course, I've just thought he was a legend ever since. Gavin turns around, picks his phone up, goes, mate, that's his phone number. But Gavin knows everyone, doesn't he? So, yes, I would have lost it with Mark Moffat, Doug Parkinson, Rick Formosa and Steve Picaro. Mark, best words of advice from a program manager? couple of quick ones here. Greg Smith from 3XY, when he employed me at 3XY, I went on to afternoons very quickly. I think I did about three mid-dawns and on to afternoons. So I'm doing the air check with Greg. And I had a bad habit of that time of doing puns. I'd do a pun to get into the, you know, out of what I was talking about into the song. And Smithy just went, no, don't do that. Anyone can do puns. And he rattled off bang, 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 about a dozen of them. And little side note, news journos on TV, it doesn't take any skill to pun. It, you know, you need like grade seven vocabulary and you can pun. But as mentioned, I think um, maybe Huggy mentioned it because probably because it came from the same guy, Gary Suprane. When Sheryl and I got together and Gary had done double shows before as well, he said, work out how you're going to get into it, work out how you're going to get out of it. That way, when you dig that hole, someone can go for the outline. And Sheryl and I dug many holes. And finally, Mark, two albums that you would consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. Well, apart from Happening 69 and Happening 71 and KTEL, I would have to say the Boston album from my late teens and also from my late teens, Tales of Mystery and, and Imagination, the Alan Parsons Project. Again, recording engineer stuff. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for being part of Pilots today. I know that so many people in both Melbourne and Brisbane remember Shirl and Irvine with much affection and, of course, your fine solo work as well, which continues, I might say, on Drive 94.1 FM on the Gold Coast. Have a listen. Mark, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. That's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Mark Irvine on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pilots of the Airwaves.